So this sermon in this passage, surprisingly, has been not so much one of the more difficult sermons, but I've been avoiding it and I haven't wanted to do it. Usually my process when I've got to prepare a sermon is I spend the previous week or two listening to other sermons while I'm working. So I just sort of trying to absorb, absorb some stuff that other people are teaching on it. And a passage like this is, you know, it's, it's full of a lot of hope. It's really, it's happy, it's great. And I don't know, when you're not in that space, it's, it's, it's not helpful and it's frustrating. And anyway, that's where I've been at the last week or so. But my goal is to, to still preach a message of hope, even though I'm a bit grumpy about it. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Be honest, you? yeah. <laughs> and I think, you know, there, there's a, a danger when we zoom in really close on passages like these. Obviously, we want to do that. We want to learn what's actually going on. That's important to zoom in and, and get what we can out of it. But sometimes when we zoom in, we lose the context and the bigger, wider biblical story of what's going on. And we can get the wrong message sometimes. So I've been listening to heaps of sermons this week about, you know, persisting in prayer and, you know, don't lose hope, Jesus will heal you, all these kind of, you know, black and white messages. And if you're someone who thinks like that, I'm not meaning to criticise you, and I'm not, hopefully I won't convince you otherwise, good, good for you if you think that way, but the reality is for a lot of us, that black and white message doesn't fit with what we experience in real life. And the reason for my hesitance, you know, it's partly my personal experience, um, unanswered prayers for healing, you know, for death to be re reversed, and I know I'm not the only one. And when I read stories like this and we focus and zoom on them, and I try and learn what I can, but the most obvious thing that stands out for me is this isn't really what I experience. This isn't real life. And I'm also aware that lots of people walk away from God before because they feel like God has let them down. So yeah, my goal is to unpack this a bit and still share a message of hope. Surely after a happy message like this one, a reading like that, surely I can't make it too depressing. The goal is a message of hope. Um, but specifically that it would be a message of hope for those who struggle with comparing these miraculous and inspiring stories and noticing that they don't stack up to real life. So if you're in that boat with me, hopefully you'll find something useful here. So starting to look at the story. Jesus crosses to the other side of the lake and a large crowd has gathered around him, including this man named Jairus. He says he's one of the synagogue leaders. So he's a prominent person. He's well respected and a leader of the synagogue. You know, he's prob probably quite powerful in human eyes. But here we see him powerless as a father with a sick child. And that's the same for everyone, isn't it? You know, it doesn't matter how popular you are, how rich, how powerful, how smart, how much money we have. We're all powerless in the face of the ultimate reality of death. Off to a happy start, right? <laughs> yeah. but, but it is important to ground ourselves in that rea reality. You know, everyone in, the, in this time, the Old Testament and the New Testament, they're much more accustomed to death than we are. It's a reality. But we shouldn't pause there. As you say, move on, next point. It's also a reality that we are promised resurrection and eternal life. You know, we have been saved from our sins and permanent death. Yeah, death and suffering is bad, full stop, but we need to accept that as part of life and also accept and understand that those bad things don't outweigh the greater things. And I heard one good analogy when I was listening to another sermon, and they're telling the story about this guy who was working up on some scaffolding, and it, something went wrong and he fell over 100 feet, about 30 metres or so, 
and he, he landed and his only complaint was he had a bit of a sore back and the paramedics you know, picked him up and put him on a stretcher and were carrying them out. And as they lifted him up to carry him out, he started to freak out, saying, you know, don't drop me, don't drop me. And, you know, he's, he survived a 30-metre fall, and now he's worried about, you know, less than a metre or so. And, and that's sort of the comparison they're pointing out here. You know, uh, we've, we've been saved from the bigger, scarier thing. Our eternal security and our ultimate reality is promised. But despite knowing that, we still can't help but worry about those smaller things. So this guy, Jairus... He's a father that is pleading to Jesus. My daughter is dying. And he says, please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. And Jesus agrees and goes with them. And so they're surrounded by this big crowd. And on the way to his house, we have this other interaction that takes place. We've got this woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. She had spent all her money on doctors. And instead of getting better, she was getting worse. So we've come across two quite different people with ultimately the same situation. We've got you know, a rich, prominent leader in the community who's you know, at the top of his game and all of a sudden things come crashing down. And then we've got this other lady who's you know, slowly been suffering and dying for a long time, for 12 years. Ultimately, they are both powerless with what really matters. So blood was a symbol of you know, both, both life and death. And to touch a bleeding person was considered unclean. And not that that's the end of the world. I know we've unpacked that previously, um, meaning ceremonially unclean. It would prevent them from doing certain things in rituals. But generally, people tried to avoid becoming unclean or having contact with someone who was unclean. And the other thing was uncleanness was contagious. So people kept their distance from someone, and it was kind of the unclean person's responsibility to say, hey, I'm unclean, you know, talk to me tomorrow. I mean, there are various different rules laid out as to what makes someone clean again and when you can interact with them. And it says that she came up behind Jesus in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. So technically, whoever this woman touches would become unclean. And culturally, it was her duty to avoid that happening. But when, we, when she touches Jesus, we actually see the opposite. She touches Jesus, and she's healed, and she's no longer bleeding. She's no longer unclean. You know, even though it's only you know, ceremonial and symbolic, that, that contagiousness, it, it paints a picture that's backwards to how it would have been viewed to them. Surely an unclean woman touching Jesus would make Jesus unclean, when in fact the opposite happened. And once Jesus realised, he said that he realised that power had gone out from him, and he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You know, you can imagine the disciples saying, you know, we're in a big crowd of people, what are you on about? This 100 people have touched you in the last few minutes, you're all rubbing shoulders. And I think this is kind of both an encouragement and also a, a bit of a warning. I found this great quote from some guy called F.B. Meyer. Um, it's going back to the 1800s, so got some funny language in here. It says that crowds throng him, throng meaning like crowded and compacted and pushed against him. So crowds are against him, but only one touches. Proximity to Christ does not necessarily imply the appropriation of Christ. But when there is the faintest touch of faith, there is an instantaneous, may we not say automatic, response. There may be great weakness, 
the fingers may be too nervous to grasp, they can only touch, but the slightest degree of faith saves, because it is the channel by which Christ enters. So again, you know, a potential warning in, in this situation, you know, it look, might look like you're close to Jesus, but are you reaching out to him? You can be in a crowd and not touching him. But also as an encouragement, Jesus knows and responds to those who do reach out. If you're hidden in a crowd, you know, undetectable by human eyes, Jesus still knows even the slightest reach out to touch him. He knows those who earnestly seek him. So maybe you're in a similar situation to this woman. You know, maybe it's something physical like this lady and feeling hopeless over your physical health or something you've been struggling with for years. Or maybe it's some you know, addiction that you're powerless over, or something that's been haunting you or dragging you down, something you've tried to get rid of but given up, expecting it to be, and, and expecting it to be with you forever. So this is a story of someone who's run out of options and is reaching out to Jesus, and Jesus responds. And I came upon this really interesting piece of history that surrounds the story. Um, there's something written by a historian called. Eusebius, probably pronounced them wrong, but this is from somewhere between 300 AD and 330 AD, so about 300 years after this has happened. And he writes about this in this town called Caesarea Philippi, just north of the Sea of Galilee, that there was a house with a monument outside that's claimed to be this woman who was healed by Jesus. And there was a, a brass sculpture outside of a woman kneeling down, reaching up to Jesus, and there was a plant growing beside the statue that touched the statue, and he goes on, make sure I read this right. Um, and this plant that arose, reaching up to the border of the brass tunic of the man, was claimed to be a remedy against all d- diseases. And it remained to, to this time, meaning 300 AD when he's writing, and it was to be seen. And then another historian, even worse pronunciation of his name, Theophylact, writes that this monument was destroyed in 355 AD by Julian the Apostate. I'm not saying that to say they built this sculpture and it was had magical powers. Um, I don't know whether that's true or not. I just find it really interesting. And I love reading historical stuff like this because it proves even the most skeptical reader has to admit that a historian who wasn't Christian acknowledged that in the area, 300 years after Jesus, they were still talking about this guy. They claimed a lady was healed from him. It's, it's, it's confirming that same story that we read here. So yeah, I just really like finding out stuff like that. I find it super interesting. So back to our story. They're on their way to Jairus' house to save his daughter. And they get interrupted by the bleeding woman. You, know, you can imagine how stressed Jairus would be at this time. You know? Jesus, we haven't got time to stop and chat. You know, Time's important. He'll be very anxious right now. And Jesus takes his time on the way to his house. And we know that Jesus loves us, and we know that he can heal. But here we see, you know, wondering how well we would do trusting that same Jesus when his timing doesn't suit us. Or worse, when his timing, you know, doesn't make sense, and he's too slow, and doesn't seem to prevent the bad things from happening. And while Jesus was still speaking to the woman, some people came up from the house of Jairus and said, Your daughter is dead. Why bother the preacher anymore? There's no point turning around, you know, what did you expect a teacher to do anyway? We need a doctor, not a rabbi. And there's another example in the Gospels where someone comes to Jesus and says, you know, my servant is sick and dying, can you heal him? And Jesus, 
says something along the lines of, you know, your faith is healed. He doesn't even go visit the guy. He says, he's healed, he's well, don't worry about it. And that happens. So we know Jesus can heal from a distance. He didn't have to make this journey to the house. And as a side note there, what I really love about all the different accounts of healings in the Gospels is there's so many different details to each one that it prevents us from locking in a pattern and saying, you know, Jesus has to heal, has to heal when he's there in person. He can do it remotely. Sometimes it's the faith of the person who reaches out to him. Sometimes it was the faith of their friends. You know, we, we can't say for sure. There's no silver bullet. And I, I think that's perhaps one of the intentions of that. Every situation that's recorded is very different. Anyway, so we know Jesus can heal from a distance. And in this story, he doesn't. Jesus takes it slow, which is good for us as the reader, but would have been very agonizing for Jairus. And eventually they arrive at the house. Everyone is mourning and the daughter is dead. And he, he asks a very insensitive question. He says, why are you weeping? Um, and just a bit of advice. Don't say that to people who are mourning in that situation. Now, Jesus can get away with it in this situation. He knows a lot more than we do. Yeah. This guy, the father, had so much faith that he travels to find this Jesus guy rather than a doctor. Travels to find this Jesus guy, asks him to come to his house and heal his daughter. And Jesus took her by the hand and said, Talitha Kumi, which is Aramaic. And that's really interesting there that Mark has left that in Aramaic. And it was probably the whole household language rather than being written in Greek like the rest of it. So it's, it's sort of a more personal response that, that Mark's intentionally left with us. That he's, he's reaching down and meeting them personally. So this, this whole encounter with Jairus is showing us and, and Jairus that even though he had great faith and trusted Jesus to do a lot, he was still thinking too small. He trusted Jesus to heal, but Jesus wanted him to trust that he had the power to raise people from the dead. He wanted them and us to know that he has authority over death and the grave. And I think that's the key lesson of this passage and We've seen it been unfolding the previous few lessons. You know, It started in chapter 2 where he intentionally goes, he does things really controversial and he goes out of his way when he saves that paralyzed man that gets lowered through the roof. And he says, your sins are forgiven rather than saying you are healed. And, and he, was, he said, the reason I said that is so you would know I have the authority to forgive sins. So he's making it clear that he wants people to know, tick one, I can forgive sins. And then he heals people, so he, so people realise he's got the authority to heal and has power over our physical bodies. And as Louise mentioned a few weeks ago, when he calmed the storm on the sea and on the boat, she connected that to the God of the Old Testament and how that was proving that you know he had the power of the waves and the water over creation itself. So he's building this picture of himself. Last week, Graham unpacked the story of healing a man with a demon showing that he has authority over Satan and the powers of darkness that have been tormenting people. So these first few chapters of the book of Mark, it's, it's kind of like Jesus is unpacking his credentials. You know, he's adding all these ticks to his CV. He's saying, I've got authority over sin, sickness, creation, powers of darkness, and even death. You know, his abilities are stacking up to parallel all the things that the people attributed to God. You know, he's making this very clear to them. He's building a, a, an argument for who he really is. And this is the core claim of the passages in, in their context. You know, 
The point of all these miracles and healings was to give proof that Jesus was who he said he was. They served as signs pointing to a greater reality. The miracles themselves were not the point. So this passage isn't intended to give us instruction on how to get healing or how to get dead people raised. You know, it's intended to reveal something about Jesus. You know, this is about Jesus, not about us. The end goal is actually the re- revelation that Jesus has the power to raise the dead. The end goal is not to raise the dead. Does that make sense? It sounds really weird to say. Yeah. If, but if the end goal was to heal and raise everyone from the dead, we should be asking why are all the apostles dead? You know, they had these same same healing powers and raising people from the dead. Why didn't they just you know have agreement that I'll heal you? You you know you can have a healing circle. They'd imagine having a cup of tea with. You know, 2,000-year-old Peter or something. That'd be awesome. But, but the point is that those miracles and healings were not the point. Death and sickness is that one-metre fall compared to that 30-metre fall. You know, we've been saved from that big one. Healings and miracles were temporary signs to give them reason to trust the message, to trust that permanent reality of eternal life. You know, Jairus' daughter, she was raised from the dead, but she still died, right? We don't know if it was a year later or 50 or 80. We don't know. But it it was never intended to be permanent. And I think that's the danger when we zoom into these stories of healings and miracles. We shouldn't necessarily come to the conclusion that, you know, God's trying to tell us if we reach out, we will be healed. If we call on Jesus, our kid will be saved. That's not necessarily the message here. And it's going to sound like I'm contradicting myself, but we should still reach out and call on Jesus. And of course he can still heal and still does answer prayers, but that's not an absolute promise. So yeah, I think it's important to see this in light of the context. He's unpacking his CV, he's pointing to who he is. But despite that, I think there still is a very clear call for us to trust Jesus. And those those two words, trust me, can cause so much good and so much hurt. If we place our trust in the right thing and it lives up to expectations, that's great. But when trust is you know, broken or abused, it causes so much damage. We hear way too many stories of parents abusing children or you know, teachers or religious leaders. You know, abuse by the ones that they should be able to trust. So mistrust, trust in the wrong thing can cause massive suffering. But trust in the right thing obviously cause untold goodness. So so the point here is for us to trust Jesus, but not in a a general sense, to be sure specifically of what we can trust him to do. As I mentioned at the start, so many people get disappointed in God when he doesn't respond how they expected. Jairus expected that God could heal, but Jesus wanted him to trust that he could raise from the dead. Jairus was thinking too small. And now I'm really going to sound like I'm contradicting myself with these next few statements, but I want to end on them intentionally leaving us in a place of what what I think are a handful of true statements that don't sit perfectly with each other. And I think that's the reality. Um, I think God's very complex, and well, at least someone else can map it out smarter than I can. I, I can't make it fit into a tidy box that works. So these next few statements, they don't really seem compatible on the surface, but I think they are all true. First of all, you know, don't expect God to do what he didn't promise. 
don't expect too much from God. We do need to trust him with what he says we can trust him and not attribute to him all the things that he has not promised. So we are promised eternal life, forgiveness of sins. At the same time, don't limit God. God can do anything. We shouldn't just trust Jesus with what we think we can trust him with. We shouldn't limit God and put him in a box. He can do more than we can imagine. Jairus trusted he could heal, but not raise from the dead. Jesus goes beyond that. God can do anything. We've seen Jesus has the power of creation, Satan, sin, sickness, and death. He is all-powerful. And that we are encouraged to reach out. You know, I, I, I've said don't expect too much, especially if it's not promised, but we're clearly told to bring our prayers and petitions to God. Not necessarily because he's going to answer them. You know, he's not a genie that just magically does everything we ask, but because he desires relationship with us. In that busy crowd, Jesus knew when someone reached out for him. And he may not respond how we expect, or in our preferred time frame, time frame but we absolutely should reach out. And last of all, to remember, to remember that Jesus has done more than we could ever ask or expect already. We are promised salvation and eternal life. What we've been promised is the best thing we could hope for. It's like we've been promised, you know, promised and guaranteed a a fancy mansion and then coming to God and saying, you know, I really want this garden sheet or, you know, something lesser than what's already been promised. We've, We've been saved from that big fall. We are to expect some smaller ones and some some suffering to come. And perhaps, you know, God, as I said, God absolutely can heal and does heal today. But he may not answer our prayers in the way that we expect.